Well, good morning to you all. If we were in a boat this morning, I think we would uh, flip over. This side is a bit heavy. Let's continue to worship this morning. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians? We'll be reading in chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. Hear the word of our God. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning in Christ with much joy. And we come with joy because we have drawn water from the wells of salvation. And we have tasted that glorious day that Isaiah speaks of, and we rise up and we give thanks to you, O Lord, and we call upon your name, and we make known your great deeds among the peoples. You are a great God, and the Holy One of Israel has been in our midst, and so we rejoice in you this morning. And we cry out with Isaiah, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Father, as we look into your good word this morning from the book of 1 Thessalonians, would you cause our hearts to say what Isaiah says? that we will trust and not be afraid. And Father, we pray this morning that as we look into these words, into, your, into the scriptures, that you would work faith in our hearts, that you would fully convince us, that you would give us assurance in who you are and who your Son is. And Father, we rely on your Spirit this morning. We cannot do this in our own strength. We cannot come to these convictions, these assurances, by our own willpower or insight, we need your Spirit to come and work in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills. And so we cast ourselves upon you, O God. Work now, we pray, in the midst of us, through your word, for your glory. Amen. 
So in these, these precious few weeks we have before Christmas and the, the New Year's, we're attempting to build on the last seven weeks of preaching, and we're consciously and purposefully setting a vision and trajectory and expect, expectation for us as the people of God in regard to three realities. And the first reality is that we would have a vision for what we believe to be true as God's people. Secondly, that we'd have a vision of what we do as God's gathered people. And third, that we would, we, would, we would be a people as God desires us to be. And so what we're doing is we're attempting to fill out and color in the, the picture of what life ought to look like as the people of God here in Thunder Bay, according to God's Word. And in this endeavor, we have sketched out the priorities as God's people In our first series, we devoted ourselves to look at specific works that the Scriptures call us to to be about, the means of grace, preaching, prayer, and the sacraments. And we follow the lead of the early church. We can look at Acts 2.42 and see what they did. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And even more than this, we devote ourselves to specific doctrines to which we hold tight namely the gospel of the Son of God, as we looked at in the Apostles' Creed. The Son of God is the gospel, and we have learned by God's grace to say, as the old hymn tells us, fair are the meadows, fair are the the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fair, Jesus is pure, who makes a woeful heart to sing. And so, so now we take up the important questions of who we are to be as God's people. What are God's aims for his people in the gospel? What is God bringing about through the means of grace? And God has intentions for us as his people. He is working to make us a people of faith, hope, and love. And we see this threefold cord that cannot be broken revealed in our text. Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. So God aims and desires and works that we would become a people of faith. And so it doesn't take much time when you're studying the Scriptures, when you're handling the Scriptures, when you're reading the Scriptures, to see that faith is an important concept in the Scriptures. Regardless of what Testament you find yourself in, Old Testament or New Testament, no matter what book you find yourself in or genre you're reading, no matter what stage of biblical history that you find yourself in, we we see that faith is an operative principle within the people of God. We can go to Hebrews chapter 11, and the author of Hebrews famously traces out faith at work in the people of God. And we see faith at work in every stage of the Bible, spanning from Abel to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, Abraham's children to Moses. And the author of Hebrews argues how important faith is. He goes on to say, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. So we see that faith is this prevalent matter. And also with faith comes life, and with disbelief comes death. Faith carries great weight in the scriptures. Abraham believed the promises of God, and he lived. 
And Paul testifies in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. He says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But the absence of faith, unbelief, brings only death and distance from God. Unbelief is the height of rebellion against God. Psalm 78 chronicles the disobedience of Israel. And the psalmist just paints a picture of the height of their disobedience towards God. The psalmist says, They did not believe in God and did not trust in His saving power. Despite His wonders, they did not believe. And even more, when we come into the pages of the New Testament, especially the teachings of Jesus, we see with faith comes the powerful working of God. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, faithfully taught his disciples about faith. Mark chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus tells his disciples, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And Jesus tells the father with the demon-possessed boy in Mark chapter 9, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus says some pretty outstanding, remarkable things about faith. And faith is a demand that is placed upon all who hear the preaching of the gospel. New Testament preaching commands all people everywhere to repent and to believe. And this was central to Jesus' proclamation. The Gospel of Mark shows the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Mark tells us how Jesus started his ministry. He says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And faith was central to Paul's working of the preaching of the gospel. In Paul's preaching, he calls people to faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we can say that faith is non-negotiable in terms of salvation. And so with just this small sampling of faith from the Scriptures this morning, we can see and even feel how important faith is in God's aims and plans and desires for His people. He is working to create a people of faith. And so if faith is a matter of life and death for us, if faith comes with the powerful working of God, if faith is a demand placed upon us when we hear the Gospel, we must ask the all-important question, what is faith? What is faith? Because I want to believe. I want to live. I want to be saved. I want to experience the nearness and the power of God. I want to fall in line with those great men from Hebrews chapter 11 who had faith. I don't want to be like Israel who disbelieved in the wilderness and disregarded the word of God. So what is this Thing called faith. And this question and answering this question right is exceptionally important, especially in our day. For the idea of faith has become a rather ambiguous reality and a confusing word. Is faith just merely a shot in the dark? 
Is faith just a Hail Mary that you throw up at the end of the game because your team is down and you have no other choice? Is faith just conjecture? Is faith just a a blind leap that we're forced to take? Is it a, a decision and choice made out of desperation because there is no better choice? Or is faith just a matter of opinion? You can have your faith and I will have my faith. I think at root of the problem of so many of these views about faith is that these views of faith in our contemporary culture have have robbed faith of its strength, its veracity, and its confidence. They instead have made faith a matter of speculation and uncertainty. Faith is just a matter of guesswork. However, when we come to the scriptures, to God's words, we see that these views, these understandings of faith do not Hold up because faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not a Hail Mary at the end of the game. It's not a matter of private opinion. Rather, the scriptures speak differently about faith. And we can go back to Hebrews chapter 11 because the author of Hebrews helps us understand faith. The author of Hebrews says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The author of Hebrews is not going to have anything to do with these whimsy and weak definitions of faith. Rather, the author of Hebrews uses two important words to describe faith, and it's working in the people of God. Faith is a matter of assurance. It's a matter of solid and reasoned confidence towards someone or something else. Again, the author of Hebrews uses the word conviction. Faith is not a shot in the dark. Rather, we have faith because we have been persuaded by the truth of God and His Word. So this morning we can say faith is this. Faith is the definite persuasion, confidence, assurance that God and His Son are indeed trustworthy. And we have come to this faith, this rock-solid assurance, this confidence in God and His Son Because our minds, our affections, our reasonings, our will have been persuaded by the knowledge and truth of God according to His word and works. So we can simplify this a bit this morning. And John Newton helps us simplify what faith is and how we can define it. John Newton writes in one of his hymns, he says, Yes, since God has said it on the promise I rely His good word demands my credit. What can unbelief reply? He is strong and can fulfill his truth. He is truth and therefore will. So according to Newton, what is faith? Well, it's viewing the character of God, the, the works of God, the purposes of God, the word of God, and then simply saying as Newton directs us, yes, yes. And so this morning... As God's people, we want to be a people who say yes to God. And we want to grow as a people in saying yes to God. And in this endeavor, the book of 1 Thessalonians is very helpful for us. For the Thessalonians were a people who learned by God's grace and God's works to say yes to God in all circumstances and occasions. And when we see and assess this letter to 1 Thessalonians, to the church in Thessalonica, we see that Paul places an honor on this church that no other church in the New Testament is blessed with. In verse 7 of our text, 
Paul writes of these believers, he says, You have become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul is pointing out this church in Thessalonica. You are a model of how all the churches ought to think and act and work. And these believers in Thessalonica have a special place in Paul's heart as a pastor and apostle. In chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, Paul writes about them. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. And Paul, throughout this letter of 1 Thessalonians, cannot help but to celebrate this church and what God is doing in this people. And the crown jewel of Paul's joy in this church are these people's faith towards God. And faith receives special attention throughout the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Paul gives thanks to God in verses 2 and 3 for these people's work of faith. And Paul tells in verse 8 that their faith has gone forth everywhere. And Paul doesn't need to tell people about it because they know it. It's evident. In verse 9, Paul recounts how these people in faith have turned from idols and have become to imitate the Lord Jesus. And so as we consider this morning the letter of 1 Thessalonians, we need to raise a few questions. How have these people, how has this church come to such a sound and practical faith? And how does Paul seek to help these people in their faith so that they might grow in saying yes to God? And even more importantly for us this morning, how can we be a people of faith and grow as a people of faith? How can we as a people grow in saying yes to God? So we can't just settle this morning with a definition of faith. But we have to ask, how can this happen for me? How can we be like the church in Thessalonica? And so within this letter and our text, Paul reveals that there are four necessary convictions that we must be persuaded of to live a life of faith and to grow in faith. So the first conviction that Paul brings us to is the character of God. We must be convicted of God's character. As we look into 1 Thessalonians, it's obvious that God is actively involved in bringing a people to faith. Faith within the people of God does not just naturally rise from us, but faith comes from the supernatural working of God in our midst. And Paul consciously ties what's going on in the Thessalonians' life, their faith, to the working of God. In verses 2 and 3 of our text, Paul is working out this connection between what's going on in the Thessalonians and what God is doing. Paul prays and he gives thanks. He says, We give thanks to God for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. So Paul gives thanks. He praises God because he knows the faith that he sees in these people is due to God's mighty hand working in their midst. He traces their faith, their work, their fruit back to its source. And the source is God. But we can pause here and go back to our definition. Our definition of faith is this. Faith is the definite persuasion. It's the confidence and assurance that God is indeed trustworthy. 
Faith is saying yes to another. So we have to ask, what about God has given the Thessalonians confidence? What about God has caused these people to say yes towards God? And the answer is that in the powerful working of God in the midst of this church, the Thessalonians witnessed and tasted the character of God. And faith only arises when we know God for who He truly is, when we taste His goodness and faithfulness in our mouths. We as a people believe because we have tasted. We have faith because we have witnessed. We entrust ourselves because we have observed. And the Thessalonians tasted God's goodness in their mouths and they were witnesses to God's faithfulness. They tasted God's love through election. You see this in verse 4. They experienced God's power through the working of the Spirit in verse 5. They witnessed God's goodness through the preaching of the Word in verse 6. And as a result, these people had faith toward God. They were fully persuaded of His good character. So this morning we can get practical as we think about faith. If we want to grow in faith, if we want to be a people who see others grow in faith, we don't look inside ourselves for this. This is not a reality we can muster up within ourselves. Rather, the only way to grow in faith, the only way to persuade others to faith, is to call ourselves and to call others to look upon, see, and taste the good character of God. We grow in faith by tasting and beholding and seeing God's goodness in all of His characteristics. And so we must, by practice, we must, by necessity, surround ourselves and bathe ourselves with the testimony of our God's good character. We must gather all we can find from the Scriptures and, and place it upon our souls. We must recount the good deeds of the Lord like Psalm 77, verse 11 teaches. This is how we grow in faith. The psalmist instructs us. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And this is how the Apostle Paul encourages faith within these people. As the, Paul's epistle closes to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 24, Paul says this to them. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so if we're to be a people of faith, we must be a people concerned about knowing and delighting in the character of God. Seeing and beholding and tasting God is how we grow in faith and confidence towards Him. Conviction number two. We must be convicted of the authority of the Word of God. So instrumental in the conversion of the Thessalonians was their conviction and reception of God's good words. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, We also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Their faith was built, was founded upon the word of God. And if we want to be a people of faith and grow in faith, our confidence must be built on the same conviction. 
So the Thessalonians were not persuaded by a crafty sales pitch by Paul. They were not enamored by the glitz and glamour of Paul's ministry. For the Apostle Paul preached a very simple message to them. Acts chapter 17 tells us a little bit about Paul's ministry among these people. Luke, in the book of Acts, records Paul's ministry. He says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So we see that the Thessalonians' faith was built upon the Word of God, as Paul reasoned from the Scriptures. But we can press into this letter a bit this morning. If it wasn't Paul's sales pitch or his glamour or his prestige, what caused the Thessalonians to accept his message and his preaching as the Word of God? We find the answer in chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And Paul makes a profound point here. The Thessalonians were convicted of the authority and veracity of the word of God and the gospel, not because of their intelligence or their insights or their great study, but fundamentally and ultimately because of the working of the Spirit. And Paul traces their reception of the Word of God back to the working of the Spirit. And Paul is teaching us here about how we come to believe and have assurance in the Scriptures. The Spirit of God among the Thessalonians worked as a prosecutor of the conscience that they could not withstand. The Spirit drew near to the church in Thessalonica and declared to them nothing but was found in the Word of God. And the Spirit brought the Word of God to their hearts in such a way that they could not resist His testimony. They could not overlook the weight of evidence He placed upon their minds. They could not ignore the overwhelming majesty of His arguments. They could not withstand withstand the force of His reasoning. And the Spirit gloriously and mercifully came to these people in Thessalonica and overcame their deficiencies of mind and spirit and will so that they could firmly say and believe, this, this what you're saying to us, Paul, is the word of God. And this is what the Spirit does in all who believe. The Spirit is this this great convincer who, who comes and presses the word of God upon our hearts and persuades us fully of its truthfulness. And so if we're to be a people of faith, if we want to grow as a people of faith, We must have this conviction deep down in our bones. This is the Word of God. Psalm 119 has this conviction, and this is how we must be led. Psalm 119 says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And Psalm 119 also teaches that we're dependent upon God to say this. Psalm 119 couples the truthfulness of God with the the neediness of God of the Spirit. Psalm 119 says, Open our eyes that we may see, behold, we may see, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We need the Word and we need the Spirit to press it upon our hearts. Conviction number three. 
We must be convicted of the, the vanity and the worthlessness of idols. Verse 9, Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. When the living God drew near to this church in Thessalonica, when the living God demonstrated his power through the Spirit, these people changed. Before the gospel and its preaching and the working of the Spirit, they were idol worshipers. But after the living God drew near, they knew without a doubt that all the idols and objects of the, of the world were but pieces of wood and metal and clay. They were able to make a firm judgment. There is one God and one God alone. And faith in God flows from a, a firm conviction that all the idols of this world are but empty and weightless. That all the things in this present life that compete for our worship, whether that be wealth or status or prestige or comfort, whatever sophisticated idols that we have in our hearts, are all hollow and worthless. And faith flows from the realization that in all our attempts at worship outside of God, all we have done for ourselves is dig wells that have no water. It involves coming to our senses and, and realizing that in our, our search for life-giving water, all that we have done is shove dirt and dust into our mouths and coming to the realization that we're still thirsty, that we're still longing for more, that we still have need. It's like the prodigal son who's in the pigsty and comes to his senses after he's eating pig food. In our fight against idolatry and in our fight for faith in God, we must consider the idols of this world, the idols of our hearts, worthless and weightless. We must be a people that cause the word of, words of Psalm 135 to sink deep into our hearts and assess all of life from this reality. Psalm 135 instructs us in our fight for faith. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So as God's people, if we want to grow in saying yes to God, we must know and taste the vanity, the emptiness, the weightlessness of idols and turn from them. Conviction number four, the necessity and the sufficiency of the Son of God. We have to see that these previous convictions, convictions one, two, and three, lead us to a fourth and final weighty conviction. Where is the character of God most clearly revealed? Where do the scriptures point us to? Where do we turn from? Empty idols? Well, brings us to the fourth conviction. We come to the Son of God revealed in the gospel. In verse 10, Paul reveals this firm conviction of the church in Thessalonica. He says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In light of the coming day of judgment, in light of the wrath of God, in light of the weight of their sins, the Thessalonians were convinced of the necessity of the Son of God. They knew that in Jesus Christ they had before them an able and competent Savior, one who could deliver them from the wrath to come, one who could vouch for them in the day of judgment, one who could completely cover them in righteousness. 
and the truths of the gospel had flooded their understanding. They were overtaken by the trustworthiness of the Savior, Jesus Christ. The assurances of his sufficiency were before them, and they were utterly convinced of Jesus and their need for them, their need for him. So where else could they turn? To whom else could they look but the Lord Jesus Christ alone? And this leads us to ourselves. Our faith as God's people must be built upon the trustworthiness, the the competency, the sufficiency, the necessity of Jesus Christ. And the sure testimony of Jesus must flood into our minds. Scriptures like these. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus' words must flood our minds if we're to be a people of faith. Jesus' great invitation, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. If we are to be a people of faith, we must be a people who hold ourselves to see the the beauty and the character and the trustworthiness of Jesus. And we must hold it out to the watching world. And I think the old hymn gets it right. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So the great question this morning as we leave is, what shall we do? And there's two sorts of people here this morning, and only two sorts of people. There are those who believe and those who don't believe. And so believers, those of you who believe, what must you do this morning? You must continue to believe. The sure testimony of God's character is before us this morning. His love, His mercy, His grace. We have tasted his goodness and faithfulness once again. We have heard the sounding of his good and authoritative word. The spirit is moving and pressing upon us even today. We have tasted the vanity and the worthlessness of idols. And we have seen the the preciousness, the sufficiency, the competency, the ability of our Savior Jesus Christ. So what should we do? We should Continue to believe. Continue to entrust ourselves to this great Savior, to this great God revealed in the Word of God. And there's a second sort of people here this morning, unbelievers. And unbelievers know this. All the necessary evidence to believe has been set before you this morning. Nothing is lacking. Evidence concerning God and His character, His goodness, His love, His mercy... Evidence concerning his word, its trustworthiness, its power. Evidence concerning the spirit and his powerful work. 
evidence concerning sin and the vanity of idols, evidence concerning the, the trustworthiness, the competency, the ability, even the willingness of the Savior to save. And so will you not join with us who believe and treasure this glorious God and think upon the goodness of His character? Will you not come with us and feast upon the good word of our God? Will you not come with us and cast aside all the idols of this world and come to faith in the living God? Will you not, in light of the coming wrath of God, in light of the great day of judgment, join with us and wait in expectancy for the revelation of our great Savior, Jesus Christ? And will you not with us cast yourselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ because he is an able, a worthy, a sufficient, a great Savior to save. So let us do this as God's people. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your good word as it testifies to us. We thank you that all the evidence has been laid before us. All that we need to believe is here. So Father, we pray by your Spirit, would you convict us and assure us of all of these truths, the goodness of your character, the the truthfulness of your word, the emptiness of all the idols, and the sufficiency of your great Son. Would you move us to faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.